Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1272. If you're a guest with us, we've been working verse by verse through the book of Titus, and we're coming to the end of the book, and we come this morning to one of the most important passages in this little book, and we'll begin reading in verse number three down through verse eight. I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, a trustworthy saying, a trustworthy saying, Titus chapter three, and we'll begin reading in verse three. And this is what the Word of God says. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Trust is an essential part of the fabric of our lives. And yet as the dark of the culture invades us and loneliness increases and individualism takes precedence, trust in institutions, trust in individuals, and trust in society as a whole is disintegrating. In light of these developments, the passage before us takes on an even greater weight as Paul calls Titus and us to trust His instructions. Five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul gives us what he calls a trustworthy or faithful saying. These statements appear to have been well known among the early Christians. Charles Spurgeon, in his excellent devotional, Morning and Evening, says this about these five sayings. Treasure up these faithful sayings. Let them be the guides of your life, your comfort, and your instruction. The apostle of the Gentiles proved them to be trustworthy, and they are still trustworthy. Not one word will fall to the ground. They are worthy of all acceptance. Let us accept them now and prove their reliability. This saying in Titus chapter 3, verses Four through eight is the last and longest of these sayings, a saying that celebrates God's saving work in his people's lives. 
The careful and compact ordering of this saying suggests that it was used as a confessional. These verses, many believe, may have been used as a hymn or a creed or a catechism in the early church. And if you were to make a list of New Testament passages that illustrate how greatly God in salvation has blessed his people, this passage would be at the top of the list. As a result, we're meant to read this passage, to reflect upon it, to trust it, and to marvel at the God that this statement reveals to us. For in this trustworthy saying, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the truth about ourselves, the truth about God, the truth about salvation, and the truth about our purpose. So would you notice with me, first of all, in verse number three, the truth about ourselves. He writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And this verse, verse number three, is one of the most penetrating descriptions in the New Testament of every single person and their condition before God in their sin. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon, The Maintenance of Good Works, says this about this passage. Do not let me talk about these things this morning while you listen to me without feeling. I want you to be turning over the pages of your old life and joining with Paul and the rest of us in our sad confession of former pleasure in evil, end quote. And what Spurgeon said to his congregation, I'm saying to you this morning regarding verse number three. Do not let me talk to you about this passage of Scripture this morning while you listen with no feeling. Stay alert. Stay awake. God is describing your condition before Him apart from a relationship with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It demands attention. And so if we're to see clearly our need for God, Paul is teaching us we need to know deeply the nature of our sin. So look at the verse, and this is what he tells us about ourselves. He tells us that sin deceives us. He says, we ourselves, all of us, with no exception, every single person in this room were once foolish. It denotes a complete lack of understanding, total ignorance in regard to a particular area of knowledge. It means to be uninformed. And the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8 that apart from Christ, we were ignorant of all the true purpose of our life and we were without spiritual understanding. The Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we lived as if God did not exist. It means that no matter how advanced our education is, no matter how grand our intellect, if we do not recognize God and trust His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the deliverance of our sin, we are simply fools. Foolish in our living. 
And this is the truth about ourselves. But he also tells us that sin deceives us by leading us astray. He says in verse number three that we ourselves were led astray. It carries the idea of purposely being led astray. And the Bible teaches us that Satan's objective is to lead sinners into ever greater sin and ungodliness. That's why John refers to the devil in the book of Revelation as the great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil, and Satan who deceives the whole world, including you and me. And according to Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 44, every single unbeliever is a children of their father, the devil. And they want to do the desires of their father, who was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. So we were deceived by our sin. We were foolish and we were led astray. He also tells us in verse 3 that sin causes us to disobey. He says we ourselves were disobedient. Our natural bent apart from Christ was to disobey and seek our own way. We were disobedient to God. We were disobedient to authorities. We were disobedient to our parents. We were disobedient to everyone and to everything. We were self-centered, self-deceived, and Satan-deceived people. This is what we were like. He also tells us in verse number three that we were dictated by our sin. He says we ourselves were slaves to various passions and pleasures. With this phrase, Paul is referring to sinful desires and sinful satisfactions. And from the word pleasure that he uses in verse number three, we get the word hedonism, the insatiable pursuit of self-satisfaction. Oh, we profess to be liberated. We profess to be free. But the Bible says in actuality, we were enslaved to a cruel and never satisfied taskmaster, our sinful nature. And we lived for pleasure. We lived for self-satisfaction. He tells us in verse number three that our sin caused us to despise. He said that we passed our days in malice. We lived with an evil attitude of mind which manifests itself in ill will and in a desire to injure. Our life was spent nurturing aggressive attitudes towards others. And we fed those hostilities with jealousy and ambition, wishing bad things would actually happen to those around us. We lived the course of our life in malice. He tells us that sin gave us desires. He says we passed our days in envy. We lived in growing frustration and disappointment. We were never satisfied with what we had. We always craved for more. And not only did we crave for more, we couldn't stand anyone around us having something that we did not possess. We were full of envy. We were full of malice. And it all culminates at the end of verse 3 where he talks about how sin destroys us. We ourselves were hated by others and hating one another. In contrast to living a life of love that the Bible describes Jesus' disciples to live, we lived a life of hatred. And it gave evidence 
that we followed the devil and not Christ. We hated everyone and everything, and other people hated us. Now, friends, listen carefully to me, and listen with feeling, and listen with open eyes and open hearts and an open soul and spirit. This verse, without exception, describes every single one of us in this room, every single person who's ever been born into this world. It characterizes our motivations. It characterizes our enslavement. It characterizes our devastating relationships with others. And it characterizes our distance from God. This is sin. And this is what sin has done to every single one of us. And you sit there in objection this morning and say, Pastor, I disagree. There were two or three things in that verse that I never did. And I say to you this morning, in your objection, you've misunderstood the whole point. He's not saying that you actually carried out every single one of these sins. He's saying to you this morning that this was the disposition and the posture of your heart and your soul and your spirit to those around you and ultimately to God. And whether you agree or not, this is how God sees you apart from his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can put your objection to the side. It really carries no weight here. What God says is ultimate authority, whether you agree with it or not. Tim Chester, in thinking about this verse, says, how does this work? How do all of these characteristics work? And he says, our individual choices have created a collective culture that deceives us. And the world pushes us into its mold, but it's a world that we've created for ourselves. And our choices have created patterns of personal behavior that enslave us. We are trapped by our habits, but they are habits we form through our actions. And as a result, we are helpless. We need someone to save us. Often people will admit that they're not perfect and they need some help, but we need more than a helping hand. We need a complete rescue, end quote. And that's the point of the verse. The point of the verse is for you and I to see that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no hope, we have no help, we have no rescue. The point of the verse is to show you your absolute desperate need for God and a relationship with Him through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll remind all of us this morning that we live in a culture that is obsessed with self. We are led to believe that life is all about us and life is all about how we feel. And as a result, if anything threatens the reality that we have made for ourselves, especially an uncompromising dose of the truth, then it must be rejected. And that's why some of you are rejecting what you're hearing right now, because this verse goes against the image that you've made for yourself. This verse goes against the thoughts that you have deceived yourself with about who you really are. And so because of this image of self, we walk around pretending we're wonderful and we've got it all together and we rationalize and then we ignore all of the evidence to the contrary. 
But friends, the good news of the gospel is when you understand who you really are, there's no longer a need to pretend. There's no longer a need to engage in image management. The reality is you will never understand the loving kindness, grace, and mercy of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, until you ultimately face the reality of who you really are. And so the application question is very simple. Do you believe the truth about yourself? That verse 3 is describing you apart from Christ. Well, we not only see the truth about ourselves. Secondly, we see the truth about God in verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. And he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Now, verses 4 to 7 form one long sentence. And it may have been taken by early Christians as a hymn or a creed or a catechism. And this long sentence from verse 4 to verse 7 hinges on verse 5 in this simple phrase. He saved us. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul turns our attention from ourselves in verse 3 and our sin and our depravity, and he turns our attention to God, our Savior. And in verses 4 and 5, Paul uses four words to describe the truth about God, and I'm lifting them straight out of the pages of Scripture. He says that God is good. A.W. Tozer defined God's goodness this way. The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of good will toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open and frank and friendly. God is good, and God is good to all people, whether they recognize it or not. He tells us also that God is love in verse 4. From this word that he uses for love, we get our word philanthropy, meaning a love for mankind. It refers to compassion, especially the eagerness to deliver someone from pain or trouble or danger. And it involves more than mere emotion, and it always finds a way to express itself in helpfulness. And you could literally, theologically speaking... Take the first word, goodness, and the second word, love, and build it on top of the third word, which is kindness. And kindness emphasizes God's genuine goodness that we've already described and his generosity of heart, which is his love. And because God is good and because God is great and because God has a compassionate love for mankind, he expresses his kindness by delivering sinners from the danger of their sin. It is essentially his goodness, his love, and his kindness. What the Bible says in the most famous verse in Scripture, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. This is the truth about God, his goodness, his love, and his kindness. And the final word that he uses to describe God in this passage is mercy. 
It refers to the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of those who receive mercy. And it assumes sufficient resources to meet the needs of those who are in need of mercy. Now notice carefully in your Bible that while Paul tells us that all of these attributes of God have always existed, he tells us in these verses there was a moment when all of these attributes appeared in history. Now look at the beginning of verse 4. An important transition takes place with the very first word of the verse, the word but. But when. And with this word, Paul is marking a clear contrast from the truth about ourselves and the truth about God, all wrapped up in a dramatic historical event. And the historical event that he is referring to is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ when he left heaven and he came to earth. And in that appearance of Jesus Christ, God's goodness, God's love, God's kindness, and God's mercy were all put on display in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will note that this is the third appearing in Titus. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, we have the appearing of the grace of God. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, we have the appearing of the glory of God. And now in Titus chapter 3 and verse 4, we have the appearing of the goodness of God, the appearing of the love of God, the appearing of the kindness of God, and the appearing of the mercy of God. And what Paul is reminding us of is that when everything was dark and hopeless, the God who saves burst onto the scene through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's reminding us that when all was dark and hopeless in our lives because of our sinful condition of verse 3, God shone his love, his goodness, his kindness, and his mercy into our lives through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, I want you to notice in verse number 5 that Paul makes it abundantly clear that this saving work, this saving appearing of God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is a result not of what we do, but of what God has done. Look at what the text says in verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Friends, as terrible as verse number 3 is, Verse number five is to the opposite extreme in greatness. Could you just listen? Listen to the text. He saved us. You are not going to find a better statement than that in all of God's word. Nothing can compare to this reality. And the prophet Isaiah tells us that we were all facing condemnation and judgment and death for our sins. And there was nothing we could do to improve our situation. Listen to what he said in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. That's why we could never save ourselves. Anyone in this condition that Isaiah is describing cannot rescue themselves. And this is the good news of the gospel. 
that Jesus Christ appeared demonstrating the love of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, and the mercy of God. And Jesus Christ saved us. He saved us from the penalty of sin. He saved us from the power of sin. And one day he will save us from the very presence of sin. He saved us so that we could come to a knowledge of the truth. He saved us so he could bring us out of darkness and bring us into life. And he saved us so he could give us a future and a hope. And look carefully at the text. God saved us not because of any righteous works on our part. Because I've already shown you we didn't have any. He saved us according to his mercy. And notice carefully, it wasn't out of his mercy. It was according to his mercy. If it were out of his mercy, his mercy would have been depleted. It could have run out. But it wasn't out of his mercy. It was according to the attribute and the character of his mercy, which never runs out. Which is good news for you and me. He never runs out of mercy towards those he saves. And this is the ground of our confidence. This is the ground of our hope. All we had to offer to God was our hatred. All we had to offer to Him was our pursuit of self-satisfaction, our pursuit of pleasure. All we had to offer to Him was our disobedience. And in His love, in His goodness, in His kindness, and in His mercy, He offered to us His Son, the only one who could save us. And so our salvation is a not, not a result of what's in our heart. Our salvation is a result of what's in God's heart. He didn't save us because we were good. He saved us because He is good. He didn't save us because we were easy to love. He saved us because He is a God of love. He didn't save us because we were kind and merciful. We were malice and envious. He saved us because He is kind and He is merciful. He intervened on our behalf. He took the initiative. He gave us hope in our helpless, hopeless condition. And so let me help you think about the reality of this truth about God. Have you ever had to make an important decision and you were struggling to make it and so you decided to take a sheet of paper and make a pros list and a cons list? And so you divided the paper in half and you put, well, this is the con, this is the bad uh, reasons to make this decision, this is the pro, this is the good reason to make this decision. Have you ever wondered what that would look like if God did that to you in your salvation? On the con side of the paper, it would read foolish, disobedient, led astray, envious, malice, hatred, hating others, enslaved to passions and pleasures and sin. It's the con list. And so he could look at that and say, there's no reason there to save them. Let me look at the pro side. And when you look at the pro side, it's blank. There's nothing there. So what does God do? He picks up his fountain pen and he writes across the top, my goodness. My love, my kindness, my mercy, I'll save them. That's why Spurgeon said the Lord saves his people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace and for no other reason. If you're a Christian this morning, do you know why you're saved? Because you've experienced the mercy of God. That's it. There's no other reason. None. 
So how would you complete this sentence this morning, friends? I am saved by God because... Do you believe the truth about yourself? And do you believe the truth about God? Third, let me show you the truth about our salvation. These verses, at the end of verse 5 to verse 7, could take weeks and weeks of sermons to explain. And I've got about 10 minutes to explain them. This is what he writes. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so it begs the question, what is the truth about our salvation? How did God save us? And in verse 5 to 7, Paul tells us four ways. And I'm lifting them straight out of the pages of your Bible. Number one, God saved us by the washing of regeneration. The word washing means to bathe all over. It consists negatively of removing filth. And it consists positively of a renewing. It could literally be translated a new beginning. The word regeneration carries the idea of receiving new life, of being born again, as the Bible talks about, or of being born from above. It's what Jesus described to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And so both the washing and the regeneration are actions that are brought about by the Holy Spirit of God who washes us, makes us clean, and gives us spiritual life. How does he save us? The Holy Spirit of God comes and washes us and cleanses us and gives us new spiritual life, a new beginning, the washing of regeneration through the Holy Spirit of God. It's exactly what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that God would do in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So everything that verse 3 describes about you, when you become saved by God through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God washes all of that filth away and gives you a new beginning. Secondly, He tells us that God saves us by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This describes the effect of this washing of regeneration. Renewal refers to the process of moral renovation and transformation that comes through the new birth. One writer has described it as an all-pervasive moral transformation, changing the whole man in heart, in disposition, in inclination, in desire, in motive, in interest, in ambition, and in purpose. It changes everything about a person. Paul described it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. That's it. 
when you are regenerated and you are renewed by the Holy Spirit, your old way of life is put away and you are given a new life in God's Son, Jesus Christ. You have a new affection. You have a new attitude. You have a new spirit inside of you. And all of this culminates in verse number 6 where Paul writes that this renewal is a result of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And with this phrase, Paul's referring back to Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended upon believers. And he's saying what God did through his Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, he will do for you in your salvation. The Holy Spirit will come and live inside of you. You will be regenerated and you will be renewed. Your manner of life will change. And friends, this isn't forming a new habit. This isn't trying to be a better person through my New Year's resolutions. This isn't turning over a new leaf. Listen to me carefully and clearly. This is being given a new life from God. And those things are dramatically different. And God, the Bible says in verse 6, gives us this work of the Holy Spirit richly. He doesn't hold anything back from us when he saves us. He gives us everything we need, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, for life and for godliness. It's all given to us so that we would be changed. Number three. Oh, this is good. This may be the best part. God saved us by justifying us by his grace. And so whom God regenerates and whom God renews, listen, he justifies. He does it all. He doesn't do one without the other. Now we're going to talk theology for a minute. Justification is a legal word. It emphasizes a new standing or a new legal status. Justification is the gracious act of God whereby he declares a person righteous because of the work of his son on the cross. Justification is an act where God imputes or credits to our account all of the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he allows us to stand before him as if we had never sinned and listen as if we obeyed God perfectly. That is justification. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we're made right with God. Through the justification of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And notice, He justifies us by His grace. Grace gives us what we do not deserve and what we cannot gain on our own. Grace tells us that we don't deserve to be forgiven, but God forgives us anyway. Grace tells us that we don't deserve to have our sins removed, but God removes them anyway. Grace tells us that we don't have Christ's own righteousness imputed to us, but God through his grace will give it to us. Grace tells us that we have a heavenly citizenship in God's Son. That we're justified, we're set apart for God, and one day we will dwell with God for all eternity. This is the grace that gives us justification. 
And friends, the Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 3 that this justification of God's grace is a gift. Listen to what he says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. You don't deserve to be justified. I don't deserve to be justified. You don't deserve to be declared innocent. You don't deserve to be declared that you obeyed perfectly. That's what makes justification grace, and it's what makes it a gift. And God gives us this grace of justification, Paul says in Romans 3, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, To be received by faith. And the reason why you can be justified. And the reason why I can be justified. Is because on the cross. Jesus Christ became the propitiation through his blood. For your sin and disobedience. On the cross. Jesus took upon himself all of your sin and all of God the Father's wrath for your sin and He propitiated it. He satisfied God's wrath so you could be declared innocent and perfect in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And why did He do this? Romans 3. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. And it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that God would be both just and the justifier. And that's it. God never lost His justice. He mediated His justice for your sin and for your disobedience on His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and justified you through the shedding of His blood and the giving of His life. And all of that was a gift of God's grace to you. Could you think about it this way? There's Jesus. He's put down on the cross, and they pick up the hammer, and the nails, and they go to one of his wrists, the wrist on his left, and they put the nail on the wrist, and they began to hammer it, and every strike of the hammer, it was this, hatred, envy, malice, disobedience. Then they picked up the next nail and went to the other wrist, and they began to hammer, enslaved to passions and pleasures, living for myself. And then they took a nail and they went to his feet. Disobedient, led astray, following my father, the devil, refusing to believe God, going my own way. And then when all the nails were hammered in, they lifted the cross high and dropped it into the ground. And in that moment, he hung there, gasping for breath becoming the propitiation for all that you were so that you could be all that he is. This, this is the truth about your salvation and what God has done for you. And if that were it, if that were it, those three reasons, we would have enough to sing a lifetime of praises to God. But in verse number 7, he tells us the fourth reason, that God saved us through adoption so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Oh, he regenerated us. 
He renewed us. He justified us. And he made us a part of his family. He adopted us and we became heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the difference that Jesus Christ makes. He gives you a future. He gives you a hope. He gives you eternal life. When you were dead and on your way to hell, Jesus Christ rescued you and gave you a future. And I want you to notice carefully in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, and in verse 7, the Apostle Paul clearly and unmistakably emphasizes that all of these truths concerning our salvation are a complete work of God accomplished for us by God's Son, Jesus Christ, through His Holy Spirit. And while it's true that you must believe in Christ for your salvation, and while it's true you must repent of your sins to be saved, you cannot do either one of these things apart from the work of God in your life. So, Pastor, how am I supposed to respond to this truth about salvation? Well, by way of application, I've thought of five ways. Number one, respond with confidence, knowing that your salvation rests on God and not you. If your salvation rested on you, you'd have already lost it, friend. Don't you know that to be true? You had trouble finding your car keys to come to church this morning. How are you going to keep your salvation? Number two, respond with humility, realizing you didn't contribute anything to your salvation. All you could contribute to it was your sin. Number three, you respond with praise. You thank the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for all that He's done for you. How He's bemercied you. How He's given you His grace, His love, His kindness, His goodness, and His mercy. And you sing His praises and you worship Him and you thank Him. Number four, you express your love to Him for all He's done to you. And number five, you trust Him. There's some of you, I guarantee it, as sure as I'm standing on this platform this morning, don't know Christ as your Savior. You've never turned from your sins. You've never believed on Jesus to save you. Your life has never been changed. You've tried all different kind of things to renew your life and make it look different. And the one thing that's missing in your life is the very thing that can change you, Jesus Christ. And I've shown you that in the text. I've shown you what you really are like and how the only way you can be changed is God moving and working in your life. And so your response this morning, unbeliever, non-Christian, your response this morning is crying out in trust to Jesus Christ and asking him to save you. So do you believe the truth about yourself? Do you believe the truth about God? Do you believe the truth about your salvation? Finally, in verse number eight, he shows us the truth about our purpose. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Everything that Paul has written is trustworthy and unfailing because God told him what to write. And God never lies. And as a result, Paul tells Titus to insist 
on these things. To keep these truths before all the people. What things is he talking about? Everything that he wrote in chapter 2 and everything that he has written in the first seven verses of chapter 3. Namely, the way believers are to live and act in regard to one another within the church, chapter 2. And the way we should live and act before the unbelieving world, chapter 3. And Titus, notice in verse 8, was to speak confidently about these truths so that those who believed in God would be careful to devote themselves to good works. Christian, would you listen this morning to this text? Your regeneration, your renewal, your justification, and your adoption should lead to you living a life devoted to good works. Demonstrating to all people, both Christian and non-Christian, both believer and unbeliever, the power of God and the wonder of his salvation through your life of good works. Those who have believed in God are to remember their responsibility in the church, their duty to submit and obey human authority. They're to remember the truth about themselves so that they don't unfairly judge others. They're to remember the truth about God They're to remember the truth about salvation and they're to remember the truth about their purpose, living a life devoted to good works. And why are we to live this way? Look at the end of the verse. Because these good works are excellent and they're profitable for people. Good works are excellent in God's sight. Good works are profitable. They're of profit to those who know Christ and they are of profit to those who don't know Christ. And what verse 8 is essentially saying, friends, is that when you've encountered Jesus Christ as your Savior and all of these wonderful truths of verses 3 to 7, a change takes place in your life and you're given a new purpose and a new direction for living. And now you want to live for God and you want to live for His glory and for His kingdom and good works. It doesn't necessarily mean that you change professions and do other things. It means that you live out your profession in a different way. Devoted to good works that are excellent and profitable for all people. And I'm telling you, a lot of you don't know me very well, but this is the story of my life. When God radically changed me, he gave me a new purpose and a new direction for living. I think I changed my major in college the first two years about five or six times. I was driving my parents absolutely nuts. And you know what the root of it was? There wasn't a purpose. And there wasn't a direction. Until Jesus changed me. And it was almost instantaneous. As soon as he changed me, I had a new purpose. I had a clear direction. Everything changed for me. It was solidified. I was focused. I had tunnel vision. And I was going somewhere because God was directing me and leading me. And that's what happens through salvation. You're given a new purpose, new direction, a new reason to live, a new way to live. So, friends, God doesn't lie. His gospel is trustworthy. We should trust him. And we should come to him with open hands and open hearts and complete surrender, saying, Lord, this is what I've done with my life. I've made a mess of it. I'm done. It's yours. Take it. Take the mess and make something beautiful 
for your glory. That's purpose. Do you believe God has a true purpose for your life, friends? Trust is an essential part of the fabric of our lives. And as the culture darkens and loneliness increases and individualism takes precedence, trust is being eroded at every turn. That's why this passage has so much weight as Paul causes, calls us to trust him in his instructions. We're meant to read it, to reflect on it, to surrender to it, to trust it. And most of all, to marvel at the God that this statement describes to us. Friends, He is the God who saves. And there is no one in this room too far gone, too far in disobedience, too wicked that God can't rescue and save this very moment. As Spurgeon said, what a thousand mercies that you have not found him mighty to destroy. No, this God, he is mighty to save. And he can save you today if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ for your salvation. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word. And we are so grateful for this word that reorients our thinking about ourselves and about you and about all that you've done for us. Father, I am confident that there are people in this room who needed to hear and be reminded of these words today. And we pray for those today who find themselves in verse 3 and have never been rescued from that condition. Would you save them this very moment? God, we pray for those today in this room who are struggling to believe that God really loves them, that God really cares about them. Would you help them to see today who you truly are? And would you help them to believe would it change everything for them? And God, for those who are struggling with purpose and reason for living, draw them to you in complete surrender today and give them a new beginning. We all humble ourselves before you today, God, in thanksgiving for your love, for your mercy, and for your grace. And we thank you for these moments together around your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.